Good timing. Perfect. Buddy. Good timing. You want to try to go back to sleep? <laughs> he didn't nap very well. He's had a bit of a cold. He's had a bit of a cold. Oh can no. You say, can you say hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers? My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you today? David, I'm well, thank you. I'm well, so windy and clear, uh, and I'm excited about many things. Uh, you know, we can no longer say monkeypox. Monkeypox has been renamed, so I don't want anyone to think about monkeypox or say monkeypox. Uh, you what know, are they calling it now? Uh, monkeypox? What are they going to call monkeypox now that we can't use the expression monkeypox? Uh, well, M-pox, which makes me M think of mm but I, I think we should have a, you know, but monkeypox, I don't know, I just love that. What's wrong with monkeypox? great word. We have chicken, we have chicken pox, why not monkeypox? I have no idea, you know, it just, it's another one of these, and gaslighting is the word of the year. Merriam-Webster has, has named it the word of the year. And uh, I asked all my students, you know, if, what, what they, you know, what they think. And they, it was a pretty good, it, it took them a while to really pin it down. We had to spend about 90 seconds on kind of really getting that definition into focus. But absolutely no... Uh, awareness uh, but curiosity because I've, I've really you know trying to you know inculcate that of you know don't just accept a word find out about its history but no no idea of where that came from and I've you know I actually like that movie uh, it's based on a stage play but the movie was Charles Boyer of course and, and Ingrid Bergman, uh, Ingrid Bergman yeah. but it's a long time ago you know and it's very stagey and uh, it's it's very weird that that has suddenly reappeared, and I think that's an interesting aspect of uh, today's era. You never know what's going to bubble back up to the surface. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So gaslighting for the audience. My understanding of it is a a type of emotional manipulation where you are making your victim feel as though they they're crazy that's that they're correct things that they're hallucinating okay the, the, so the, that's what i thought but it comes the, the the basic plot is, is very straightforward charles boyer was part of a, a gang of of jewel thieves and a jewel robbery uh hall was hidden in the attic of where Bergman is living. And so the whole relationship that Boyer has with her is completely false and a setup. He's only there to recover these jewels because he's quite, uh, he, not just because he wants the, the, the money they might be worth, he is actually psychologically uh, fixated on jewels. There are a couple of moments where you see that he's not your ordinary thief. He's, uh, he's psychotic. But he attempts to, to drive her mad because he wants more access to the attic. Uh, and the gaslighting thing is when he, you know, he's, he's adjusting the gas at night to, he's, to conduct his searches. But he's concerned that he, he hasn't found them. 
and he he wants her out of the way. So it's a little bit of a Scooby-Doo. Those shows picked up on a lot of that idea of, of what does a bad person, how do they get access to and free time to hunt for something? Uh, will they create a monster to scare off other people? In this case, the monster is trying to drive uh, Bergman insane. And, and she's, uh, seeing, she's seeing the gas lamps flicker on and off. That's where the, the title comes from? Yes, yes. And uh, mm-hmm. so she's, she's responding very reasonably and rationally to the fact that she's living with someone who at bare minimum is out to entirely deceive her and is living a complete falsehood, but on the other hand is, is, a, is a criminal. And then is, on top of that is kind of a psychologically obsessed criminal. Uh, he's got kind of a sexual turn-on for Jules. There's a beautiful little speech where he does it. And uh, he wasn't, you know, a hugely, uh, well, he was a good actor, but that moment is really quite uh, powerful. And the supporting cast of, of pe- that he's trying to uh, show her up as crazy to is very interesting. So there's some cool psychological dimensions to it, but you wouldn't necessarily, and it's been redone millions of times in various different forms. Lots of TV movies of the week from the 1970s actually pulled up this mm-hmm. theme. They recycled mm-hmm. a ton. Um, but, I mean, it, it's inherent in the idea of head games, you know, that, that old stoner right. phrase. Right. I mean, it, it's been around a long time. So the idea that we would go back to the original title uh, when almost nobody using that phrase really recalls or has seen lately the movie that it's based on is is another good example of how things are working today where we have these fossils and artifacts that we have a a fixation on and we really don't have any idea, uh, generally speaking, where they come from. Obviously some people do, but... uh, it, it's odd. For all of the numbers of times the phrase gets used, it's not very clear to people where it comes from. And it's not that long ago, you know, the 1930s, you know. Right, right. And knowing where it came from and perhaps watching the movie might solidify the definition so that it doesn't get as corrupted as it is. I've always found the term gaslighting funny because the concept of manipulating someone into thinking they're crazy is a really convenient word for crazy people to use. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if, if you tell somebody who is being crazy that they're crazy, now they can say, you're gaslighting me. Where it's like, no. You're nuts. Insane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that is gaslighting being the word of the year uh, makes a lot of sense because it does feel like nobody wants to take responsibility for anything so if now it's also a term where if you are even denying somebody's personal reality uh you might be gaslighting them so all forms of reality are good ones uh, except for the ones that i don't know that people don't that the culture doesn't like i've been away from quote unquote the culture before we started recording this we were going over some of the notes for things that we might talk about and I hadn't heard any of it because I have been blissfully away from the news and social media. I've been in my my man cave writing fiction and 
obviously taking care of this kiddo. His cold has gotten a lot better today. It was it was bad yesterday, a lot of coughing and snot, which is gross, but it's part of the parenting package. Um, but yeah, I've just been away from it, and it's so it's so glorious to just not know anything to hear it first the first time through you you know like the the killer you mentioned that in san francisco they might green light not gaslight but green light a plan to allow robots to use lethal force yeah i'm assuming against homeless people this must be a homeless people thing right? yeah yeah well that inference is pretty solid i mean that's exactly yeah. what's going on and it's of course a way of kind of you know uh, with automated control not dealing with the whole situation never you know? having to deal with it it's, this is the theme this is the theme never having to deal with it i for the listeners i did not have my creative challenge done today i had taken notes in a notebook uh that i cannot find not that it would have mattered because i didn't flesh it out the way i should have but you notice what i just did there i said i fucked I fucked up. You know, yeah. it's my fault. <laughs> it's just so rare. If you meet somebody who admits fault these days, it feels like you've met a unicorn. It's For me, it's an immediate uh, trust issue. Just the ability for somebody to say, oh, that's my fault. I think to myself, this person is light years ahead of the average Twitter user. Yeah, and, the, and uh, God, when you say unicorn... Uh, you know, it makes me think of the gender unicorn. It's just, we're, it's just such a crazy time. And I, I loved right up against the uh, robot lethal force story. I hit the, this, this is immediately sort of current news of a woman has launched a lawsuit against Kraft Foods because their claims of their Velveeta, Velveeta cheese, the non-cheese cheese product, their macaroni and Velveeta product, which they claim to be uh, capable of preparation in three and a half minutes, doesn't deliver on the three and a half minute promise. So she's launched a $5 million lawsuit. And you know, I would just like to interview the, the, the law firm that's taken that case on, you know? I mean... Right, right. There seems to be a lot of lawsuits these days about it. very strange, very technical issues such as this. I, I saw uh, a friend sent me a TikTok recently, and... A popular way of making fun of people on the internet is to use what are called Wojaks. Have you seen Wojaks? They're the animated faces that look shocked or, or crying. Or, right, right. It's yeah, yeah, it's basically yeah. Okay. Saying, you know, it's like saying, this is you. And it was a commercial for a law firm that said, has somebody on the internet used a Wojak to, you know, make fun of you? According to the state of Pennsylvania's libel laws, you might have a lawsuit case against them. And it's just getting kind of nuts because I'd have to assume that this woman is claiming that the three and a half minute prep time is wrong because I, I have this Velveeta mac and cheese 
and it takes three and a half minutes in the microwave. But that's not counting removing the lid, filling up the water, depositing the cheese. <laughs> I have to assume that's what she means, that, that the prep saying that it, the whole thing takes three and a half minutes is technically wrong. So, but that's just, I mean, that's just why. I mean, it's, it's a scam, right? It's obviously a scam on this woman's part. She's trying to make money. Uh, but wow, how specific everything's going to have to get, right? You're well, going to have is... to have signs on doors that say, push, uh, if it sticks, push just a little bit harder, but please don't push too hard because there you might trip. You know what I mean? Like, everything's going to have to be labeled. Well, it is. This coffee is hot. Sure. You know? Yeah. And, and this is the right. underlying truth of, of our society, particularly America. Uh, you know, put aside all of the pretenses about anxieties, about uh, wokeism and climate change and high and noble restorative justice and all of the all of the themes that appear to be in operation. Really, it's all one giant liability suit. And the, one of the reasons for it, and, and we've we've talked about it takes you know a while for some of the fallout for from big explosions like nuclear explosions in the atmosphere to you know trickle down and percolate through pervade culture and the genome and the cultural genome uh well there's you know there was such an explosion of lawyers you know uh alan ginsburg said i saw the best minds of my generation you know from go met well i saw supposedly a lot of the best minds of my generation go to law school and we cranked out so many lawyers, and that's what we're drowning in, you know? Um, that's a really good point. It's what you select for. It's occupational evolution, yes. basically. Yes, it is. <laughs> we all selected for lawyers because they get paid so much. I wonder what the average salary of a lawyer is. I'd have to assume if there's more of them that they would be less likely to be compensated well oh it's gotten so much more competitive i mean i mean there's been a huge i mean las vegas has the most uh visible advertising for the legal profession of any city in america but it wasn't that long ago that lawyers couldn't advertise at all and in many jurisdictions they had complete monopolies complete controlled monopolies of certain kinds of uh, transactions. And I mean, two of the most immense changes to happen in the last uh, 75 years that most people don't think about is the deregulation of advertising. That used to be a completely protected world unto itself. Um, and the law, for, the, the legal profession, completely protected in ways that were completely artificial. You know, I mean, you have to say that that the medical profession uh, is protected a little bit, you know, through the insurance sort of networks and also because, you know, some obvious physical expertise that's needed. But nevertheless, they've, they've faced uh, growing competition. But lawyers have seen many of their really nice little money-making things broken down entirely, you know, and so yeah. they've responded uh with it gets really specific the, over here i'll see signs for like were you pulled over with legal marijuana call da, 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 da. yeah they have to specialize now 
Yeah, they do. And it, it, it's going to get more intense. Uh, and they're lowering the, um, you know, the LSAT tests, like the, which is the legal equivalent of the MCATs in the medical profession. Many of the major schools are now foregoing that because they think that they, uh, they want to increase diversity and they think uh, that will, you know, be less of a barrier uh, to uh, potential oh, students. So, yeah. Fantastic. You know, it's it's just insane. It really is insane. But I think that, that there is so much of the uh, of of really the underlying theme of particularly American culture has to do with liability. This is one of the things that I would pick up on living when I really felt like I was an expat living overseas and could really start seeing America through the the locals' eyes. This was all. This always came up. Some outrageous news story, oftentimes urban legends, but but based in some truth, like the McDonald's coffee uh, case, yeah. which people may I've seen know the about. pictures. That was horrific. Well, that was really hot coffee. Well, and it got you know it, it got misrepresented and turned into late night you know t you know t talk show fodder and mis there's a really good documentary film about how that got abused. But nevertheless, oh, yeah. it's part of a, a program and a pattern of outrageous lawsuits that people pick up on. And that was what I, I heard about America in, you know, in the UK, in India, in Australia, New Zealand. Um, you know, it was always someone is doing something outrageous, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they're just having a go as the, you know, <laughs> And it's like, oh, okay. And it was kind of seen like, well, you know, just take on authority and, yeah, sue them. See, see what you, maybe they'll settle for, you know, sue for, right. for 10 million and maybe you get, you know, 250 grand just to go away. And you think, oh, okay, well, that makes it, you know, that sounds like a good plan. I mean, how is that different than loan sharks shaking people down? You know, it's like, if, oh, man, if this is built into American culture, it, that, I think you just I don't want to get too far ahead maybe we should put a pin in it so we can do our opener stuff but the thought that I had was if this sort of liability culture is American to its core I mean no wonder we ended up with Me Too and things of that nature oh right? absolutely there's no there's a direct line There, there's no uh, I mean you could you could go on a beautiful dimensional uh explanation with great visualizations of how those relationships work venn diagrams to you know up the yin yang about that i mean it is exactly what's going on there's no mm -hmm. question about it. you cannot subtract the liability legal threat reparations money you know show us the money that's all the right you know that's the driving wheel you know Wow. And it's interesting, too, because it's shifted from a liability in the sense that you're trying to get a little bit of money out of it to punitive liability, where you it's not that you want money necessarily, although sometimes that is the case. You want the other person to never be able to make money again. Right. It's very interesting. Very, very crabs in a bucket style mentality. Like if I can't get mine... I'm going to make sure nobody does. Yeah. You're all going down with the ship. And then we wonder about, well, mass shootings being suicides conducted on 
you know, a projectile scale. It, isn't that just connected? I mean, it is. It's totally connected. It's totally connected. It's, wow, so mass shootings, we can make a not, not tenuous, I think a pretty robust chain of, of links there from liability, from a McDonald's coffee cup burning an old woman to someone going into a movie theater and opening up an AR-15 into the crowd. That's interesting. And it, that would be an interesting thought. Like, this <laughs> might be a little touchy for your students, right? But you write those two things down and say, what's the connection between these? How do we get from this to this? It is exactly that. And it works on the asymmetric warfare point of view, too. I mean, remember the Tylenol murders? I'm sure you've heard about them. I think that was one of the most, you know, it's product tampering. Uh, and it's behind all of the packaging and anxiety now about things being, uh, you know, tinkered with at the manufacturing level or at the, even the store level. And it, it can be the weapon is fear now. You don't actually have to you know, really kill that many people. But if you can, you can get back at the world and make people right. scared. Yeah, yeah. The Tylenol murders are interesting. My parents were affected by those because they would have been teenagers when that happened. Let's see, I was born in 1986. This happened in 81, 82, something like that. It was uh, so four years. Anyway, not important. But they, this infected everything about it. They told me once not to get my change out of a payphone. And uh, for our Zoomer listeners, a payphone is it was a public telephone that you could deposit quarters into <laughs> if you needed to make a call. Uh, but not to get your change out of the payphone slot because this is exactly what my dad told me. Because people with AIDS were putting infected needles in in, in those depo coin deposit slots. So there was just like this urban legend. It's, it's razor blades and apples at Halloween, you know? It's just, mm -hmm. it's like, okay, look, how, how paranoid can we get, you know? Right, right. Well, that's fascinating. I want to get to your aphorism and your band for the day. And okay. My imaginative challenge before we get, because we just, we shot off like a rocket. Yeah, we uh, did. We'll have to be, pull it back on. Yeah, okay. Well, okay, the band... Um, one of the words of the week in class in the vocabulary building history of words love of language section was oxymoron which is a great word great concept and one of my better students uh, made the comment that oxymoron uh, is is almost so emblematic of today that it goes without saying and I thought yeah that's that's kind of true you know it really is it's everywhere you turn so I went for a soft, fun, oxymoronic band name of Barefoot Shoes. Uh, I like it. I saw this. Which, oh, by the way, will exi do exist. They do. And, uh, and I, I yeah. saw them. I saw them uh, on one of my ad feeds, you know, and I thought, what? I mean, okay, I'm going to go with that because it's today and, and everything's an oxymoron. Um, but yeah, it is a thing, and I don't, I don't know how that really. I guess that means you don't wear socks, you know. But well, they're they're really interesting. I looked into these. I do not own a pair of barefoot shoes, but I did look into it. The idea being that sh uh, sh the way that shoes are designed now uh, really mess up our arches, 
and it's uh, back to the back to the way people were supposed to be. Everybody used to walk around barefoot. So the the design of the shoe is such that you are basically walking barefoot with uh, just minimal minimal uh, interfacing between the shoe sole and the ground. Right? It's just it's just kind of barely there. All of your toes get their own little slot. Uh, they look horrific. They look horrendous. <laughs> Apparently, this was a big thing. It was uh, a couple years ago when COVID first started, there was all these cottage industries of, of kind of DIY health. Barefoot shoes were big for that. Also, uh, getting sun on your, on your balls was a big one. There was a whole group of people who were saying, you know, for like five minutes a day, go out in your backyard. Oh, and, I remember and, that. Yeah. Allow the, allow the sun because, you know, the, the testicle... The testicular, the sac, if you will, is uh, very the scrotum. The scrotum, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> Everyone's favorite word. It's like there with mucus, you know? It's one of the great scrotum. words. Mm -hmm. You can't mm -hmm. forget that Yeah, word. there was this sun on the balls, carnivore diets, and barefoot shoes were definitely a thing. God, archaeotechnology as, you know, I love it, you know? It's, it's a great word, um, archaeotechnology. I dig it. Um, got to get Graham Hancock on that. we got to get him to be our spokesperson for archaeotechnology. Yeah, what business. a wonderful guy. Oh, my. Uh, okay, so Barefoot Shoes is the band name, and um, their album is called Left-Handed Dead People of the World Unite. You know, and I'm, I'm sort of waiting in this era of, of victimology and, you know, marginalized people. I'm really, really anticipating some sort of upheaval from the lefties, the southpaws of the world, you know. Um, it's uh, Both of my parents are left-handed, but I'm right-handed. Interesting. Interesting. What about Gus? Is Gus showing handedness? He, I believe he's right-handed as well. His mother's right-handed. I'm right-handed, but yeah. Well, I hope you give him the left. right to choose. You know. Oh, absolutely not. If I see anything in that left hand, see, this is where the discrimination comes in, right? Because I, I give him a, a squirt with a water bottle. Oh, that's the, uh, good. Not shock collar, just water. <laughs> water. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just well, water, you just know. Water. Hey, hey, the you know the the, the non-barking thing for dogs works on on small people too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very also, also just a lot of uh, a lot of shame, a lot of shame. You know, like shame is great. That, always I go say, old I school, say. old school. Yeah, you know, that's right, that's right. You know, but yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not sure, I'm not sure which hand he is. I think I'm trying to think. He normally does things with his right. I have a feeling he's going to be a righty. Although if he is a lefty, I personally I'll be very disappointed, but I'll accept him for who he is, right? I I believe in acceptance. Well, I there's a lot to be said for shit. I had a friend who uh, she has uh, a kind of well, I don't know, uh, a child that uh, she it was a turkey baster deal, and good for her, you know. Um, but she's not into shame, as she says. And, and she, I was out with her in a Vegas restaurant. She was in town with the, the child. And uh, 
the child was getting you know mobile you know and decided to uh, remove all clothes and and sort of then defecate on the floor and uh, I said well you know this is a restaurant and there's going to be because yeah. well I'm not into shame and I thought oh, okay well <laughs> I'm sitting at, at another table <laughs> and yeah because yeah I mean what's the that's not shame that's just learning how to not be an animal you know <laughs> it's like you don't want your kid to be like a dog I mean, well, dogs, dogs are better behaved. <laughs> yeah, true. true. You don't have you have service animal dogs that are really cool, and there's there's a dog that's around my neighborhood who's a retired uh, police dog, and it's like you know that dog is an officer, you know, in good standing, yeah. you know, and and a, a decorated like. hero, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the only cops I like. The retired police dogs. Yeah, they're very mellow. They're they're well. They're actually not that mellow. They're very alert and they're very, but they're respectful and they respect themselves. And I don't know. Some of these things are just so completely nuts. But uh, so barefoot shoes in their first album, left-handed dead people of the world unite. Excellent. Perfect. And. What was the aphorism? He didn't say the aphorism. No, did I didn't. I've, and I've I got, think. I've got, a, I've, I've, I've been so. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of. Uh, the aphorism is my new uh, art form. We were talking about sort of about writing interests, and I congratulate you on on your recent novel completion and you know being engaged in that. And it's not that I'm not interested in fiction, but um, I'm finding. Uh, well, I'm working on the on the memory and consciousness book, which is a you know that's a big deal. So I'm taking that in uh, sort of small doses, uh, but um, I thought I might share the question that I've been invited to, and I'm, I feel very honored about this. To uh, there's some really really smart people from around the world. There are some really big name people. Uh, much, you know, really, you know, quite famous, to contribute a question. And the one framework is that you're to imagine uh, the question in the context of, of an interview with, with someone across a table from you. So there's, they've tried to put a framework on it that gives it a little bit of a personal sort of tone. So you're to craft your question in those terms. So you want to know what my question is, the one that I put forward? Yeah. Are you in the wild? And I think that's a very powerful question that has a lot to do with the whole problem of, of humanity, uh, where we sit in the spectrum of life, the great continuum of life, how we define uh, human society and civilization relative to nature. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a genuine question I have. I mean, if we're not in the wild, uh, where are we? How do we, you know, what, what are we putting in opposition to the wild? What did we ever mean by that uh, historically? There's a lot of interesting stuff there. So I, was, I think it's a simple 
easily remembered question. I think it's something that we do think about from different points of view. Uh, so that was what I put forward, and I think sometimes aphorisms should be uh, questions. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is an interesting question. I <clears throat> One that I wouldn't really know how to answer right now. I would say yes. I would say that I am in the wild at the moment because I have a child, and my days certainly feel wild. Uh, sometimes when I look at the state of my house, I feel like I might as well be living in the wilderness. But, yeah, I'd have to think of, are you in the wild? Are you in the wild? I, I say absolutely, um, because I think that <clears throat> uh, I, I dispute all of the definitions uh, that have historically been put forward uh, for what the wild is. Uh, so I, I think that I come down, I'm sort of an absolutist uh, in terms of free speech as uh, one of our more notorious entrepreneurs of the world uh, has claimed. And I'm, I'm sort of a, an absolutist when it comes to humans being part of, the, of nature and part of the continuum of organic life on the planet. Um, so is a is a is a motor vehicle is a is a jeep natural? Yes. All right, you are an absolutist. Yes. Is an iPhone natural? Yes. I think it's too hard. I think that I understand what I I, I completely understand the argument that it's not. I completely do, and I'm not saying that. Um, my my extended argument is that the notion of artificial should be th seen in terms of artifice and mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. Edward T. Hall's idea of extensions. Um, and I think that if you try to unpackage where human creations, which is effectively the larger rubric of technology, uh, where that becomes something entirely separate from nature, uh, it, it, it's very, very difficult to unpack that. And it always then puts us at, at a greater remove. We start moving f further and further away from other life forms into a very mm -hmm. peculiar alienated position, which is where I think we are. Uh, and the only hope then is, is for some benign sense of stewardship and leadership on the part of our species, which we know is mm -hmm. not forthcoming. Uh, and I think that we have to, to integrate and see this more from an alien perspective. What would the alien mm -hmm. aerial view look? How would, it, how would it look at things? And I think that there are a lot of similarities between the giant termite towers of Australia and parts of Africa and cities like Manhattan, you know? I don't think it's just shapes, mm -hmm. and, and, but I think that there's a sense of manufacture and creation uh, that is fundamental to, to humanity. Um, mm. So unless we think of ourselves as completely alienated from all life forms, from all habitats, from all mm -hmm. other conditions of organic life on planet Earth, uh, I don't see any other uh, starting point answer, which is not to say that you can just leave that without, you know, further explanation and, and, and mm -hmm. prosecution. I, I certainly agree with that. Um, but yeah, I do think, but I think the wild has an idea of, 
a balance between a sense of structure and rule and algorithmic predictability and also a free form uh, in, improvisational survival aspect. Right. And right, right. I absolutely think that I'm in the wild that way. I think I could disappear on air right now. Um, mm. You know, mm. I don't think that there's any support system necessarily. And what support systems I have within my own organic being, about 99% of them I don't really understand. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm certainly, they're certainly not the under my control. Yeah, it's probably for the best that you don't understand them. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I don't want to have to manage my mitochondria, you know. Right. I really don't. Um, it seems like it would be a full-time job. Well, that, that one aspect alone, managing one single hormonal chemical would be, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we, we're, and this is why I think the, the word corporate and the, the body idea extends to corporations and to larger uh, social structures is that we implicitly do understand that we are a hierarchy of systems that are very mysterious and have interactions that we really uh, don't know how to deal with. And we're kind of like the, our notion of identity is sort of like a CEO of you know, General Electric, who has really no idea of, of what's going on on the manufacturing floor in Dayton, Ohio, you know, um, mm -hmm. and wouldn't even know, you know, what's being manufactured there. You know, it's just a line item on a giant profit and loss, you know, end of year summary. Um, that's kind of the level we're at with ourselves. And uh, so this does relate back to many of my thoughts about the nature of identity and selfhood. Um, that I think is about as wild as anything can get, you know? <laughs> yeah, interesting. So for today, uh, what is my imaginative challenge? Okay. Well, and I did have a backup aphorism, if that was kind of, uh, which tie, I just, I only sort of mentioned because it ties in with a, a lovely sort of story you told about the estate sale, and we've kind of mentioned that. And it's that history is an evolutionary record of questions or an estate sale, an ongoing estate mm -hmm. sale of mm -hmm. questions. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I want to look at the idea. This is, I'm going to give you two examples. And your imaginative challenge is to come up with a third, which forms a kind of harmonic chord with your two givens, okay? And okay. the harmonic level is something you will have to speak to and defend. Hopefully it will be, and I'm knowing you, it will kind of be intuitively clear, but it, some sort of, of, of defense support is also part of the challenge. I want to look first at John Cage's musical composition, 4 minutes and 33 seconds which I think many people, if they haven't heard it, ha-ha, uh, would know is a, a piece of, of pure silence. But it's meant to be you know, performed by a full symphonic orchestra and with an audience present. And it's about ambient sound of coughing and sneezing and feet moving. And... Uh, you know, you could say it's a Marcel Duchampian kind of conceptual art piece more than it is a music piece. 
There's a very powerful full presentation on YouTube, which I strongly encourage people to, to watch because it's done completely faithfully with a tremendous amount of enthusiasm. If, and that's ironic, you know, because it's, it's completely silent in a beautiful, beautiful way, I think. My, my point there is I think that happened at a particular moment in history not just art history, but, but history of humanity overall, that it couldn't really have been done and wouldn't have been thought of before. But even if you look at it just in terms of music history, I think it, it has a particular uh, singular nature to its appearance in time. And it caused a lot of controversy. Um, and as a analog comparison point, I might point out Igor Stravinsky's The Rites of Spring, uh, which caused pandemonium, some of which has been exaggerated, but it did, people did tear out some seats and got very upset when they heard it for the first time. Now that's a very different artistic creation and obviously total silence uh, is very different than the chaotic nature of, of Stravinsky's music, which is, you know, music in anyone's terms. No one, no one argued that. So I think Cage came along and did something that couldn't have been done at any other time. Once done, it was done, and anything else like it is kind of, you know, well, me too, you know. Uh, and I don't, I don't think that it could have been done before then, but more importantly, it just wasn't. The second thing I would say, and this is odd that it came to me, because this is, I, I'm a secret optimist, I think, uh, and mm -hmm. I keep finding that out about myself, um, because I thought of uh, Neil Armstrong stepping onto the moon. Uh, I think that was something that had to happen at a certain point in time and could not have happened before then. And I say the secret optimism thing because I could have easily also said uh, the atomic bombs on uh, Japan or the uh, hydrogen testings. You know, I've, I'm a big, we've talked about, I'm, I'm hugely connected with the, the nuclear era. I think about that a lot. But I didn't think of that first. I thought of the moon landing. So those are two events in very different registers. One is, is a pure artistic uh, example, I suppose you could say. A lot of people walking around the streets have never heard of John Cage, would never know what's going on. And yet I think it had an enormous ripple. It was, an, it was part of a, uh, a general awareness of art getting a little you know, experimental. Um, and there might be, you know, people who have no interest in uh, serious uh, artistic music, and yet they would they would have some awareness that there was a guy who put forward a piece of total silence as music. I think everybody has some connection with the first steps, the first footprints on the moon, uh, and you know the mythology that we never really did that that was all of a setup but all of that those both those events are examples of maybe the inherent uh, inevitability or or the need for history and time 
to express itself in certain ways that it couldn't have happened earlier. Okay? Mm -hmm. That's my real point. Mm -hmm. So your imaginative challenge is to come up with a third to, to round out this triad into har some sort of harmonic chord. Some demonstration mm -hmm. expression of, of the idea that history happens in its own time. That things couldn't really have been before their time. Sometimes we think they can be. But what if things unfold as they need to? Mm. And you're free to choose what walk of life that comes from. Right. I think I might have it. Okay. I was making a couple, couple of notes here. Uh, all right. Well, okay. So we have a lot of... Thank you for that, by the way. That's a great challenge. Um, we have a lot of stuff that we could potentially talk about today, but if you don't mind, and we, this doesn't have to take up the whole episode, but I had a question for you. Uh, I love questions. In our <laughs> are, you, are you in the wild? No, that's, that's your question. Um, so before we got recording, I was talking about my novel, uh, that I finished recently and we were sort of talking back and forth about the books and fiction and you, you mentioned to me that, that fiction doesn't seem as interesting to you as it perhaps once was and I wanted to interrogate that a little bit because I think that it will flow into some of the other things that we've been talking about so what is it about fiction this is a, a question purely formed in the negative so we rather than focus on what is appealing about nonfiction what is what is unappealing about fiction to you well that's a very good question I appreciate I, I love the idea of being interrogated that's really you know what I'm hungry mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. um, well I would say first of all I don't think that fiction does do that I think that that's one of my biggest uh, needs as, as a thinking person and as a reading person is I, I want some sense of interrogation and I don't feel I get that generally speaking from uh, most of the fiction that I hear anything about or that I directly dig into that is uh, contemporary. Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's the first level. I feel there's an assumption of frames that uh, I feel like I'm kind of on top of, and I what I want is 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 some challenge to those really deep structure frames of, of thought, you know, and and to move beyond the manipulation of characters and plot. Uh, I find that very clunky, um, and I find some of the equivalents in in other art forms uh, clunky. I mean, there's an element of which I think melody, for instance, in music, actually fatigues me. Uh, it, it seems to be something that is designed to be remembered rather than listened to in the moment. I mean, think about it. A melody almost can be defined as, as music you can hear when you're not listening to it. Think about that a moment. You know, I think that's a, not a bad definition of melody music you can hear that's a very good definition yeah i think so thank you and it 
and it's insidious that way. I mean, I think it's it's kind of a haunting. It's a it's it's an alienating distance from the presence of the moment, and it also mm. ties in back to the Gregory Bateson line, which we've referred to many times. That uh, any the more predictable. Uh, any message is the less information it contains which I think is an enormous challenge to the idea of what information actually is okay. so predictability mm -hmm. I don't mean predictability in just a plot sense this is you know knowing what's going to happen next uh, I mean the predictability of, of the frame of what fiction actually is work I, I don't think there's a th there's an underlying theory about that I think that that writers are often uh, you know taught not to have theories and I understand why because literary <laughs> theory is a terribly destitute um, line of, of endeavor I mean it's um, right it's right, tragic right. you know it's 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 it it has a lot to do with how sterile uh, some you know really good thinking literature became in the postmodern era. I don't doubt that, but nonetheless, there's there's a sense of um, non uh, non engagement with deeper grammars of thinking that I think is really uh, a problem, and some of it is simply also like I know too much about how writing is taught. And how people speak about writing and there's a guy named Adam Tan T-A-N who is a young uh, marimba percussionist based in Australia and I've been checking out his tutorials he's got a, a YouTube channel called the studio and he's very hip and boppy and he's got you know he, he's great in terms of being able to speak to younger people but one of the things that he really is is very you know just unselfconsciously promoting is the physicality of, of the music, of, of getting your mm -hmm. chops up in terms of the stamina of mallet play, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things mm -hmm. that I, I, I mean, where's the physicality of, of writing? Where's the sense of stamina? Where's that, where's that connection? Where is the learning how to, to do new things? Or I, I just find I read a lot of stuff and I, I go, well, yeah, okay, you know, uh, mm -hmm. but I, I, mm -hmm. I want to learn new things. I want to have a new perspective on how I think and, and relate to the world. I want to learn. I mean, one of the things, okay, here's a really practical question or issue. One of the things that attracted a lot of us to writing in uh, post-World War II American literature terms was knowledge of subcultures you know this permeated mm -hmm. fiction it permeated non-fiction uh, it was you know Hubert Selby's last excellent exit to Brooklyn or Hunter Thompson going off with the Hell's Angels or you could you anthropologically learn something about the world you know from your armchair that you might not have known about and mm -hmm. I think that's mm -hmm. really fantastic and I've seen less and less of that you know um, mm -hmm. I, and I think more and more of it is is uh, creative nonfiction or you know high quality uh, book length journalism, uh, 
rather yeah. than, than they call it they call it auto fiction yeah is the new term for it and I can't stand it I feel that <clears throat> what you're saying is very interesting to me because it feels like there was a fork in the road and we could have gone the Raymond Carver way or we could have gone the Ishmael Reed way and we should have gone the Ishmael Reed way right I love those books like I love Mumbo Jumbo is one of my favorites your books are some of my favorites David Foster Wallace and what they all share is that you get the sense, say, reading Reverend America, I think it's probably the best example, of there being, you feel like you're getting a line on a kind of secret history or the things that are just underneath the surface of reality. And at times it can get cartoonish, but that's what makes it, that's what makes it fun. So it seems that we've, we've turned down the the Looney Tunes cartoon wild uh, interesting aspects of fiction and have gone straight for well I'm looking at I'm looking at this bookshelf here I mean there's just not much that jumps out to me and well this is these are uh, Rios's books and you know no sh no shade to my wife but you know she's kind of into some of this newer stuff and I'm looking at these books and I and I'm wondering, <laughs> like, what's going what's going on with these? I do. Um, you'd mentioned the assumption of of frames, and I'm assuming one of those frames is what you've just mentioned, the creative nonfiction frame. What are some of these other frames that are being assumed in in the world of writing? Well, okay, it starts with, uh, I mean, the book format itself, a certain sort of, of length, a certain uh, number. I mean, look at the, the way uh, a lot of the wannabe writers talk about what they're doing on social media. I, I did, you know, I did 1,500 words today. Oh, great. I mean, it's a manufacturing model of, I mean, is that really how you would really, is that how musicians or visual artists talk about things? I don't think so. I think that's a very weird way to put it. Um, so it's a cumulative, uh, linear frame. And, and, and the writing really is, a, I mean, it's not dimensional enough. And, I, and film often isn't dimensional enough for me either because I think it follows some of, uh, it's even more linear, even though it appears to be sort of dimensional. Um, I'm not a big film fan anymore. It's so interesting that you mentioned that. Rios put on a film the other day called Barbarian. I watched it. I thought it was good. I'll say good. But the movie got started, and I thought, oh, my God, we're at the beginning. You know what I mean? I'm like, we're at the beginning of the movie? And then we were in the middle, and I thought, oh, we're in the middle now. <laughs> and then towards the end, I was like, okay, so now we're, now we're ending. And it's, it doesn't matter if there are twists and turns in the movie. I still knew where I was in the movie. It's one of the reasons why I love David Lynch's work so much. Because you can never yes. tell where you're at in, in a David Lynch movie. Never. Not even once. Hodorowsky's really good at this, too. You know, you mentioned this multidimensional thinking, and I want to let the listeners in on. I asked you for advice with this book because I was having trouble linking my first and third acts into a second act. And as I was describing the book to you, I said, well, the first part of it is sort of like a heavy metal guitar solo and the third act of it is more of a slow heavy dirge style thing right 
And I was just using those as analogies, right, for things like speed and color and movement and things like that. But then you said something that I thought was so brilliant, and I'm trying to get into the Sacknessum mindset of these things. You said, go find songs that pretend you're a DJ. Go find the songs of your first and third act, and then you as a DJ, what, what song would you put in to link those two together? And I went and I did it. And then I thought, oh, right, perfect, exactly. So yeah, I love this idea. I think through the through the negative, I think you've just maybe given listeners a really positive thing of, you know, yeah, writing might not be doing 1,500 words a day. It might be, you know, going and climbing it. You're like, I'm going to go do some research, right? What does it feel like to climb a tree or steal a car? Don't tell the cops that I told you to steal a car if you steal a car, but... <laughs> But you see what I mean? I do, I, mean, I do, and I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm very pleased that that advice was helpful to you. And I, I think that that one way to, to, to frame this is in terms of, of breaking out of frames is to challenge art and challenge writing in particular at this point to give us some new ways of of really processing the world, new ways of processing our own thought, and breaking with some patterns and. In that sense, I think that um, writing just isn't experimental enough in, in heart. And I don't mean stylistically experimental, but situations that really challenge what we, how we put together thoughts, ideas, and form patterns. Because pattern is, is at the heart of, of, of everything. I mean, really, it's, it's all about pattern recognition and what how much freedom we have to expand those. And I want more uh, from art to help me with that, that project of getting some interesting alchemical, not control, but insight into some of my deep pattern structures, you know? Mm -hmm. And if I can break out of those, then things start to open up. And I see a lot of things happening in, in music. I see a lot of potential happening in terms of, of visual art. We uh, featured Robert Irwin in the book club and his focus on presence and breaking out of, of the notion of metaphor. I've often mentioned the notion that, that metaphor is as much wall as it is window. And I really think that's kind of emblematic of my larger thinking, is that language structures uh, and fiction is, is that, you know, totally, uh, often mm-hmm. forgets mm-hmm. all the things that it's mired in, you know? And we, we mm-hmm. get a kind of programmatic uh, presentation that is just, well, at least for the moment, it's not as exciting to me as, um, well, a lot of people, I do go back to, for instance, you mentioned Ishmael Reed, and I certainly support that. I, I often go back to just little fragments of Julio Cortazar, you know, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and some mm-hmm. of his more obscure uh, books, not the really famous ones like Hopscotch and uh, mm-hmm. 62, A Model Kit, you know, some of his... Uh, just little moments, you know, uh, 
and maybe that's also you know, I think that that's another thing is my reading is is much more focused and I I find that if things really just jangle me then I'm I'm back into my own notebook or I'm back making something of my own I don't have as much concentration for sitting down and absorbing uh, you know a 400 page uh, novel which uh, would have been you know once you know something I wouldn't really have thought too much about it in, in terms of a stamina event you know um, sure, sure. I, I don't have yeah. that now. And also, I find if I'm turning the pages too quickly, I think that's kind of like scrolling. I really don't see that as being much different. So that doesn't fulfill me either. Um, mm -hmm. So there are some things on that kind of level. But something that really... Walker Percy is a, is a novelist I still go back to. I think that he makes me... Uh, ask some questions you know uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I don't know but it, I'm, I'm, I'm looking around I, I did revisit uh, kind of because you were talking about cyberpunk and we, we did talk about Rudy Rucker who's he's a, a friend he's been a good supporter of mine and I, I have a lot of admiration for his work but I went back and looked at some William Gibson and, and kind of and so I am reading I it, it's not as if uh, but I'm also kind of, of, of reading and, and disposing of or not finding that satisfaction. I'm doing it more as sort of from a critical point of view and an analytical point of view than an enjoyment point of view. And some mm -hmm. of what Gibson was doing that seems so interesting to me, and I think to a lot of us at, at one point, just... Uh, it just doesn't hold up in my head now. It really doesn't. It seems like an artifact, and I can enjoy it that yeah. way. Um, right. But, you know, God, it's not... I, and I'm talking about some stuff that's not that, you know, far back in the past. And I did check out the, the TV show, the, the Peripheral, which I think was... Mm -hmm. uh, I think his, the book of that came out in 2014, which is not that long ago, mm -hmm. really. Um, and I just thought, you know... No, I, this is not what I... It's not what my soul needs at this particular moment in my journey. Mm, interesting, interesting. And, that, and that's based around, again, the assumption of these frames and the fact that, uh, you know, when you mentioned the 400-page novel, that's the melody. It's the thing that you could put the book down and you could just guess what happens next, essentially. I will say, I'll have to give Melody some thought because I was listening to the Beatles in the car with Gus today, and there's some pretty kick-ass songs, man. I do like them, uh, but I, your point is well taken. The the more predictability there is, the less actual semantic value it has. And well, look, I'm I'm you know deeply conflicted because I'm a great believer in 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 melody, both literally in in terms of all its various forms, but conceptually, I'm I'm a traditionalist. I really do believe in in structure. I I'm a great supporter of the Western canon. I'm a great uh, opponent of the new wokest idea of of throw out all these these great structures of thought. Um, 
so I'm I'm really you know I'm really torn about uh, how those how those work. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess I'm just particularly hard on what contemporary literature has turned out to be. Um, and I, to be fair, I think I I think the social realism of today has gotten more of my attention than uh, than it should. There, there's probably more happening in genre frames, and uh, there's there is probably more speculative, um, imaginative work being done than than I'm I'm keeping track of. But I. I don't know. When I check out sort of what books are being talked about in an NPR frame, I kind of, I, I just feel my heart sink a little bit, um, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, no, I, I feel you, I feel you, yeah. It's a, I think that there's, you know who's a very, one of my favorite writers is Michelle Welbeck, the French writer, uh -huh. who did, uh, you know, The Possibility of an Island and submission which was very controversial when it came out in 2006 i believe it imagines a future france that's under uh, sharia law he's somebody who i think has an interesting social commentary because he's so offensive to the establishment right he's every single one of his books uh his book called the map and the territory uh to to kind of stick with our uh, cartography theme in this show uh, is one of my favorite books ever ever written I think it's amazing and the, the the trick of the book is that at the beginning it follows a sort of lonely rich artist who falls in love and out of love but in the final third of the book it turns into a murder mystery because detectives have discovered the the distant like the uh, disintegrated and cut up and decapitated body of Michelle Welbeck right so it's about his own murder, which I thought was just so interesting. But he's somebody who really does push those frames around. And within those frames, he uses his platform and his opportunity to ask very uncomfortable things about race, uh, women. He gets the, the misogynist uh, label leveled at him quite often. But he's somebody who's kind of, you know, I get excited when I pick up a book by him. And I think that that's... Um, maybe also what you're getting at here it's it used to be you know when i would get like i remember getting private midnight in the mail being excited i remember going to buy you know uh bloods a rover by james elroy which is not one of his best but i, I knew the day it was coming out and i went and i felt excited holding the book in my hand i thought this is gonna rip the last time i felt that way might have been when I got a copy of Destroy All Monsters by Jeff Jackson, mm -hmm. which is a really, it's a really good novel that's, uh, you know, you get to the end of the first part and you have to flip the book over for, for side B in which he takes the characters and sort of remixes everything that came before. It's a really cool structure, a really cool way of doing the book. But other than that, I mean, I buy books and they come to my house and I hold them and think, Okay, there, there's going to be some cool info in here, but I haven't been excited about a book in quite some time. I think that's, in a nutshell, what I'm talking about. But you have mentioned a couple of, of, of key things, which you're so good at, that then trigger then 
a bit more clarity in my mind. Um, you mentioned a word that that a lot of people look down on. It's it's denigrated, but it's it's highly valued in my little universe. A trick, you know, and I like tricks. I have a huge. I too. I'm hugely involved in in the study of stage magic. I mention that as a metaphor in my textbook on creative writing and the imagination. I'm a big fan of, you know, the the leading magicians. I'm glad that I live in Las Vegas. I don't have the money right now to go to see a lot of the shows, but I'm, you know, people like Penn and Teller and David Blaine and the whole history of stage magic and illusion and Le Jardin. You know, all of that. Is, is very, very interesting to me. And I miss that sense of magic, stage magic and circus and uh, mystery religion, you know? Uh, that was uh, really, really important. And I was also, you know, I, I started off as a, you know, as a drug person and a, a surrealist and, and someone involved with the beats and a whole world of improvisational art forms in, in music and visual art. And a lot of that just seems to have gotten a really tight sphincter in recent times. Yeah, no fun. You no know, it's no fun. fun. It's man. fun and excitement, you know. I mean, uh, there there's, I think, still a bookstore in L.A. called Amok, A-M-O-K, uh, from... The uh, the psychological condition in, in, in Malaysia and the Philippines of running amok, you know, and they mm -hmm. used to I, they may still produce these wonderful bibliographies of all transgressive literature from fiction to you know, well people like Lily and McKenna and it's just a kind of it's a resource of all the things that I'm interested in. And Mark Pauline, the, the San Francisco robotics sculpture artist who's survival research laboratories, uh, I think they're still doing things. I haven't sort of heard much about it. And that's kind of faded out with along the same time frame as, as Cyberpunk did. Um, but he said of that, that reading list, you know, this is the answer to the literacy problem in America, that if you gave that to young people, you know, all of these kind of not quite forbidden books, but... Uh, but now, like, what's it for? It's just, it's all about gender and race. And I, I only have so much, uh, you know, interest in money that I want to spend on that. I am, I don't think I'm the audience right. for, for what's for, you know, it's as simple yeah, as that. We're, we're, we're definitely not. We're definitely not. And I think that the, those types of books don't necessarily suffer from their focus being on sexuality or race or what have you but just from being dreadfully boring just boring i mean as a writer no matter what you're particularly interested in it's part of your job to make it interesting to other people right i mean <laughs> you can't just sit there and sort of autistically uh navel gaze and then expect people to read it unless i mean unless you luck out and the, the your particular brand of navel gazing is shared by a large portion of the population who will pay for your book in that case sure fine but for me i'm with you i like tricks i like tricksters i like to feel like the an author is messing with me or is trying to make me sick <laughs> there was a book that i thought was really great called alice not k-n-o-t-t -T by Blake Butler 
and I ripped through the whole thing in three or four sittings and by the end of it I felt dizzy and a little sick and I told people that and they said oh so you you hated it right I said no I thought it was great that's like getting off of a roller coaster you feel sick right that's how I felt when I finished that book um so yeah that's just that's what I'm looking for I'm looking to I'm looking for signs of life Exactly. Any sign of Look, life. That's ex- and, and, and that means you have questions of, of intent. You have questions of like, well, what does this mean to me? What, what am I, you know? And all of those things, I think, are what part, you know, the essential part of the artistic experience is. And that's what I'm saying. And I, I think I'm missing so much of is, is I, I feel like I know how to respond. And so... I'm already ready to move on. Whereas, you know, take someone like Elroy, you mentioned, and I would, he would be in a long list of, of writers. Even if I don't care anything about the nature of the story, I am at least conscious of a deeply crafted uh, prose style that engages me. It's like... It, like reading some of Lawrence Durrell, you know, it's like I don't have any idea sometimes about what's going on, and I can, I can be lost in a page for a long, but I feel my mind is being restructured with the language, mm-hmm. and I really, really mm-hmm. admire that—the depth of that, you know. It's and that that's possible to achieve in so many different ways. But I don't think that's mm-hmm. emphasized at all. I don't think that uh, that writers today, generally speaking, really focus much on on sentences. They take them for granted. No. You yeah. Know? David Markson used to do that. He used to rearrange my brain with everything, whether it was this is a novel or Wittgenstein's nephew, um, another writer who did this. And as far as I can tell, there's only one book that was translated into English. I believe his name was Patrick Orednich, Polish fellow. I'm probably really messing that up. But the book was called Europeana, and it's a very slim novella about World War II and the rippling effect that it had out till today. It's a very... If, if a book could be, uh, you know, our, our quip... A woman spills a, a hot cup of McDonald's coffee, and that now we have me too. That's what this book is, but it's just you know sentence after sentence of just hitting you with this kind of stuff, and it's really hard to find. The OU Library of all places had it when I needed to find it when I was nineteen or twenty years old, and I don't think it's a factor of age. I don't think because I'm well, I'm almost thirty six. Uh, Jesus, just because I'm. I'm yeah. I'll be 30, 36 on Thursday. That scares me. So, yeah. <laughs> but I don't think that it's a function of that, right? I, I just, I want to be tricked. I want to be messed with. I want to, I want to feel like the thing in my hands is, is alive and that it's kind of scary. It, it might give me some sort of cooties or disease, but I'm going to open it up anyway. Oh. And... Okay, look, I just want to jump in here because this you, you've given me, a, a, like this is a really simple, very practical, this just happened in real time, 
So it's very, it should be very, very clear to people. But okay, you mentioned that you're 36. Well, to me, that is far more surprising than my age. Okay, you and I are the same. You know, the age difference hasn't changed. I'm exploding theoretically at at kind of a consistent rate with your explosion uh, mm -hmm. or progression. You know, if we want to look at it that way. But sometimes it's those little insights, and I find I have this experience quite often that where I look around and something gives me an entirely new perspective on where I am in a way that is disproportionately important. You know, I, I you know, of course you're, th I mean, that's no big surprise. And yet it's another perspective on, on things because that's somehow just, it, it shouldn't have surprised me, but it kind of, there was a little element of, of impact. I thought, wow. You know, I mm -hmm. I just don't think of you <laughs> that, way. and it's it, mm -hmm. it it is personal because we know we always think of, of our own age. That's kind of important, you know, inherently to all of us. But this is right. what I'm 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 looking more for contemporary fiction to give me this kind of people who are noticing things, people who are more attentive or attentive to the world and to consciousness and possibility in ways that I'm not, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it feels like there used to be people who were more like that. You know what I think, man? I think a lot of that goes into tweets. I think that we can't ignore the absolute, you know, just napalming of the ecosystem of, you know, unique, interesting thoughts going into writing once every time people have a unique or interesting thought, they think, I'm going to tweet that. That's tweet a good that point. And well, get, I get nine likes. I'm going to get nine likes for this. Look, I think that's a, that is an absolutely valid and important insight that, that a lot of the cultural genius, if we can use that term, uh, available at any given moment has, is reconfiguring. It's reconfiguring away from the long lead times and rejection slips of writing and all of that. I mean, I remember a time I used to, uh, I lived in a house where I had a shotgun hallway, you know, and I would have the whole hallway lined up with self-addressed stamped envelopes. A lot of people may not even know what that means anymore. You know, sending out submissions all the time. And I had an entire room, seriously, a room full of bookshelves of literary journals you know that that i published and and but they were a, a minor thing of all of the stuff that i'd ever sent out so all of these giant big clunky landfill mechanisms of trying to get ideas across our attention spans are much shorter we want you know feedback faster me included uh we, we are repositioning and reconfiguring how we, this creative instinct, and I, I, I'm, I'm certain that social media has uh, absorbed that all. And in a way, it's become a collective mind as, as in a good way and in a bad way. Uh, and it can be seen as a medium unto itself, a kind of ongoing kaleidoscopic theater of hopes and dreams and, and little... Uh, segments of, of story uh, mm -hmm. and in some ways that's more interesting to me than 
I don't know. I, I well, here's an example. I mean, the the Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann is a, is a great book that I think everyone should read at at a certain point. Well, I, I'm I'm too old to get back to that now. I just that would be a real effort to get back to that frame of, of mind. There's a whole realm of, of literature that I think is out of the question. But nonetheless, when I look at my uh, Kindle and I look at my shelves and I think about all the cool stuff I have to discover, and you know, this is hard for me because we're contemporary writers. We're wanting people to discover our books and read them. But we're up against some pretty serious competition, you know? Uh, yeah, we really are. Yeah. You know, and there's, there is that because time is limited and attention is limited. And uh, reading is a very solitary sort of act in a lot of ways. We, you know, when you're reading in, in, in younger day, particularly college and university, which is kind of a lost, you know, thing now, particularly for, you know, straight men, if I can be blunt, uh, Mm-hmm. That that idea of reading a book at the same time as other people and being able to talk about it, um, mm-hmm. and that was of course the big power of art house movies. You could go to see a movie and then you might spend you know an hour and a half to to three hours max sort of watching it. But you could just, you know dissect that with friends afterwards, and you could you know go to a coffee shop or go to a bar, or get high, and talk about it. And really, can you do that? I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult to do that. And Goodreads and all of these online things that try to build writing communities, I totally support that. I support public libraries and have my whole professional writing life. I dig all of that. But it's still kind of, it's a lot of, of social work and effort and time to connect about something and I just don't think that there's enough uh, consistency of impact for most works to uh, to have to be to, to be the hub of conversations and discussions mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why I keep my novels short I still call them novels because I'm stubborn yeah but I I do a lot of compacting um, speaking of how I felt dizzy when I read Alice Knott, people who've read my upcoming novel have reported that as well, that by the end of it they were kind of in a daze and dizzy and, you know, sort of out of it, which was good. That was the goal. I'm glad that it achieved that, but it moves at this rocket ship speed, which is a function, number one, of how I have fun. I like throwing things at people and <clears throat> having a million jokes per page and making sure that it's propulsive and interesting but also it's a factor of what you're say of what of what you're saying you know the way that i write my books is a function of i know that people are leery about making an investment of time for for reading these things right so if i want to write something bigger on a grander scale like what i'm doing here with this book uh i'm breaking it up into little chunks you know and of course eventually i'll put them all into a you know a single volume some some years down the road but the serialized uh, short novels seems to kind of be the way to go just to get people on board oh I think it board. is the way to go you know? and I, I, I absolutely support that I am looking forward to reading 
your newest book over over the Christmas holidays. I I, I am going to uh, I want to be engaged in that. Um, I mean, I think that that is is wise from many points of view, and it indexes well against, uh, you know, I think the great literature of the past too, because I think what 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 each of those works that has managed to survive, which in itself is quite remarkable, and I I, I think it's very interesting to ask the question, which uh, you can ask of 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 you know really accomplished major writers of where exactly well here's a good I'll, I'll ask a question of you that I that where does where is Moby Dick where does it actually live and that's a really hard question to answer because there are multiple levels you know there are where you know mm -hmm. why do we have a text that is the official approved version who who did that? Where does that live? Is that on a server? Is it physical, printed form? You know, on and on and on these questions of, and is that in fact a good way to describe where Moby Dick? You know, which is not 1851. That's not that long ago. Um, where does that uh, live within culture? Uh, mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So those are questions. But I think working on the uh, also, I think that, that your prose style is, is something that, I mean, you actually really do have a very engaging, distinctive prose style, which is one of my kind of uh, prerequisites. You know, I, I really, mm -hmm. I want to know mm -hmm. I'm reading someone, I'm not reading someone else. You know, <laughs> I really, right. I, right. I think that's kind of important. J.G. Ballard often doesn't really interest me. I get kind of, I feel like I know where he's going, but yeah, God damn it, he writes good same. sentences. Yeah. You know, he writes distinctive he sure sentences. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah, he really does. He really does, and that that, you know, people, you know, his books aren't always the best, but I feel like Chuck Palahniuk is another one of yeah, those. Yeah, he'd be in that category. Burroughs, I, yeah, you know, Burroughs, yeah, Gibson mm -hmm. at his best was that. Um, you know, I yeah. think some of yeah, that Gibson's, was a little mm -hmm. bit too. Uh, much like looking at graffiti as you're on a train going through, you know, and you think, okay, right. well, I've done that now. Um, but <laughs> I, I think your looking strategy is good, you know, and yeah. you're also, mm -hmm. like all of, I think we're, we're trying to find ways to reach out to, to younger people with new attention spans and a lack of cultural references, which is very mm -hmm. difficult to... Uh, I never know what my students will uh, remember and know. Uh, it's bizarre. It, it's entirely based on uh, things that I'm not really party to because I don't have their television and streaming habits, you know. Um, I mean, for instance, there's been a lot of talk of Tom and Jerry cartoons in, in one of my classes. Now, I wouldn't have said that, I mean, why that? And then I mentioned like the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote and no recognition at all, you know? Whoa, um, whoa. So you just don't That's know. Crazy. So I, I think the idea of, of short, sharp, strange, uh, keep moving. And the most important thing, which I, which I get from you, I think is that you really, uh, you enjoy the creative process and I think that's one of the important things that uh, that artists you know really have to remember and when these people go I did 1500 words today it's like well why don't you measure you know 
how how big a, a poop you took you know I mean really it's um, it sounds awfully labor driven rather than fun or excitement or you know mm-hmm. I mean God imagine mm-hmm. the you know, is that how people think about their sex lives? You know, I lasted, you know, 37 minutes. You know, it's like, oh, uh, yeah. it's God. I okay. did, yeah, 100, 128 pumps. You know, Jesus. This, this evening, yeah, yeah. There you go. See, that's what we want. We want that kind of coming, you know, that coming in out of, you know, that's, that's, what, that's where the art is, you know. It's just suddenly this full-on chorus out of nowhere and uh and a lot of of what could happen i think is is uh and this is one of the big movements in 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 all of the arts has been just simply displacement collage mosaic you know it hasn't been a a a departure from structure but it's been an interrogation of the of the nature of structure you know Right, flip right, things around right. a little bit, and and maybe reverse tell the story. Or, I mean, isn't that what a lot of of the whole movement from uh, ancient storytelling to more experimental, you know, modernist fiction was just querying sort of the the, the order of things, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the order of things. The the ability to summarize and truncate certain things because we don't need them anymore. And, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, if you wouldn't mind, I think we we should, I'm sorry that I took up all the conversation time. No, no, that talk, was good. That was fascinating to me. But if you wouldn't mind, if we could uh, move into the, the final segments because this guy is grumpy. He's, he's, <laughs> he's not going to be interested in me uh, podcasting. He's getting a lot better, but he still seems to have this... Uh, let it out, son. Would you like some water? There you go. You got it. You're good. <laughs> I thought about, I had the craziest thought uh, yesterday while I was sort of, you know, listening to him hack and wheeze and, and things like that. The reason why was because, you know, if he was standing up straight, he was totally fine. But if he laid down, the kind of mucus would sort of slide down his throat and he'd choke on it. And I thought, oh my God, this is his first time experiencing congestion. He has no idea what to do. Mm. Isn't that crazy? Like yeah. we get a little sniffle, we're like, oh God. You know, my nose is stuffed up again or my nose is runny. What's the matter, Bubba? Do you want something to drink? Well, you can hold a tune. He sure can. Yeah, he's hitting some, he's hitting some notes. But yeah, um, for my imaginative challenge... Yeah, what's the harmonic the third... here? What's the triad? Give me just one second. I'm going to see if I can calm him down a little bit. Hey, buddy, buddy, buddy. Hey.
right, so the third harmonic. In 1983, Chuck Hall invents the first 3D printer, and the first 3D printed object pops out of the machine, and it's a doorknob. I think the creation of that doorknob oh, wow. is my is my harmonic. That's not see now that's a good example. I didn't know that. So that's one of the, 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 the challenges for all writers. You know, show don't tell as the saying goes. Yeah, well if you're gonna tell somebody, tell something, you know, that they don't know. So that's good. Mm. You know? Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. good. We're all teachers mm -hmm. and or you know, or we should be better students and you're you know that's great. I didn't know that. That's a really nice example. That's, you know, it's and it's a lot more interesting, I think, than the first microchip or there. You could have plugged in so many things into that, that framework. And so this is this is a, an example of a frame forming because those are I gave you two very conflicting different examples. You know, and mm -hmm. that that box. Okay, there's still a box or a frame. But you've added something that has then changed the field. If people want to understand mm. what field theory is, that's the beginning of it. So you've got, a, you've got three things that are going on that have, have changed something now. And it's off the... It's, it, I mean, God, there could have been any number of things that you could have popped in. And you could have gone... Uh, I didn't say that you couldn't have gone backwards in time to something that wasn't a linear thing. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that may have been implicit, but it wasn't a condition. So that changes the field there. And also, I think the doorknob, I, mean, I did not know that. So that's an interesting fact. I like the idea of the 3D printing technology. I think that's a very, uh, that's pregnant for the future in terms of what that may lead to. We're only really beginning to see the possibilities of that. Uh, and a doorknob is such a beautiful uh, first. I you know that's that's lovely on many levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that what I took away from it was you know four thirty three as you mentioned changed what people think music is, which oddly enough really led into the rest of this conversation. Yes, right? where you're listening to the ambient noises and the coughs and the shuffling of feet, and then the first step on the moon changed people's perception of who we are in the universe in our solar system at least you know what technology is possible it's a, about moving out and yeah i just I, I thought that uh you know the neil armstrong walking i was thinking doors something with a door and you know the first 3d printed object was a door knob and it just changes what people people's relation i think to uh, to the material that's around us. These things are very slow moving, right? So 1980, almost 40 years ago now, uh, the first, well, the first patent was in 1979, I want to say, 79 or 80. And it's an interesting story. It's one of those uh, classic mystic, like the original guy who filed the patent for the 3D printer. It's a Japanese fellow, but he didn't follow the very strict Japanese patent rules so he was denied the patent but the information was out there and uh, Raytheon came in and scooped it up so could have been a very rich guy <laughs> but just missed it due to you know bureaucracy and red tape but 
it ch it changed the relationship to the materials that we use and our roles as consumers versus makers and in 2022 40 years later average people have 3d printers in their house it's not quite to the point yet where it's a technology that you can just just kind of use conveniently but it's definitely out there yeah you know? it, so it, I, it's I, going I to it's, head I that way huge. yes Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a beautiful, you know, and it makes me think of, I mean, we, we talk often, you know, about the, the concept of, of, of frames, but, you know, it makes me think of, of Zappa's, Frank Zappa's great line, you know, for painting literally, but for other arts figuratively, the frame is, is the most important thing because you don't know where the art stops and the real world begins. And mm -hmm. I think this is exactly where we want to get to with, with all of art, but certainly for me, more with fiction. So it ties in definitely with, um, with what we've been talking about in terms of, you know, raising some questions, giving us some new perspectives, some, something we haven't thought about, you know. And uh, I, I do think there's probably one little thing here in terms of I, I don't see enough strange knowledge and new perspectives coming from the female writers that that I have been exposed to of, of you know in recent time mm -hmm. I I don't think that's as, as much a value whereas I do think it is a value certainly with uh, with male writers of my generation and I think that it's certainly a value for you and for it mm -hmm. I, I find that I my you know I, I learn things, you know, and that's kind of one of my, uh, it's not that I don't learn, you know, things talking to or, or, or reading women writers, but most of the time I focus on uh, the really great uh, female nonfiction writers of today and their time, you know, they're exploring some directions that I think are really, really, really cool and I feel like my knowledge set grows, you know. Right, right. Mine is definitely more male-oriented in that same sense because I'm thinking now there are a few. Sarah Grant is one. Donna Tart is another who move along the kind of lines that we talk about where their books are fun and interesting and you learn something new. And um, But for, yeah, for me, it's, mo it's mostly males. Sorry, ladies. I think you're great, but... And you're all, by the way, you can't get mad at me because their women are cleaning up in publishing right now. So yeah, I just definitely. think that we're, we're it's we're not part of the market, and that's that's just yeah. You know. I agree. Yeah, I think that's what it is, and that you know what that is what it is. But I am bound and determined to create my own market <laughs> for these things because I know there are people out yeah, there who well, are like I hear you. I I, I support just, that. Just buried by the algorithm. Yeah, they're just buried by the algorithm right now. You know, if I didn't know any better uh, and every major outlet of communication on social media was telling me that this is what books have become, I would just play video games. Because I would think, oh, okay, well, at least video games have some things that I'm interested in. But I'm grateful that I'm almost 36 because I was able to exist in a time when the types of writers that you and I you know, because when I was in uh, late high school, early college, that was the big, uh, Roberto Bolaño had just died and all of his books were getting translated and sent over here. So I was reading 2666, I was reading uh, Infinite Jest, 
you know, it was kind of the David Foster Wallace heyday right before his suicide. I got into Brett Easton Ellis, Ishmael Reed, uh, and that was, you know, those were easily uh, discoverable writers now, right? I mean, there's been almost 20 years of people poo-pooing and looking down their nose at books, noses at books like Infinite Jest. I think without realizing that those books are doorways for people to become fans of reading in general. Yeah. And if you snark, I... snark a book too much and make it seem like you're uncool if you like this kind of book, you're really shooting yourself in the foot, to be honest with you. Well, I think so. I, I couldn't agree more, you know. Um, but, uh, you look, you know, keep on with the program. I think that's the best, you know, uh, we all can do. I mean, I think it's, it, it's a stamina survival game. And it's also, uh, it's about courage and heart. And we don't like to talk mm -hmm. about that in today's culture. But it, it <laughs> does, you know, that's what's needed. And it's always been what's needed in the arts. And it, it, the best way to seek that out, because it's hard to bolster courage, because that involves fear and risk and loss yeah. and pain and stuff. So right. to, to reposition that, go for fun, for excitement, for that, that classic gesture of the baby's hand reaching out for the, the, the toy hanging from the mobile or... The, the, the woman's dangly earring on the subway train that that I want that I you know that mm -hmm. that sense of gimme I gotta be in it you know wherever that mood takes you I mean if if people feel that way about you know the NPR uh, books of the year great it's better that they're reading than you know a lot of things I support that and there are some great books in that list and I, I support everything to do with uh, reading and learning in any frame, you know, learning about anything. Yeah. I, I'm an absolutist on that front too, uh, for, you know, for good and for evil, you know. But I really think you gotta, you know, dance to the music that makes you dance, you know. Don't mm -hmm. try to, you know, <laughs> you can't fake it, you know. You can't fake a good meal, as, as William Burroughs said. And I don't think you can fake great enthusiasm, you know. Um, so whatever speaks to people that way, you know, follow that intuitive chain and that will lead to strange rivers and jungles. And that's what the Lost Explorers Project is about, is let that intuitive sense of your own uh, seeking, you know, the, the seeker within, let that, let that monster loose and, and just enjoy that. And whatever, whatever happens along the way, that's much more important than the artifact of, of the product. I mean, it is about process. Mm -hmm. That's that's something that I think is true about all the arts. You gotta dig it in the doing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm interested in the tip and tool for the day. Okay, well, I'm, I'm um, taking upon myself the challenge with, with my tools of retooling some of the great tools of, of uh, cultural history and I think that dialectic is one of them in the classic sense of uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. But this is a good example of breaking narrative structures. I think this is one of the problems that, that now I've just a quick note about my problems with fiction today is that we, we 
speak at large about fake news, which is kind of a synonym for fiction, and we often use the term narrative as opposed to story. And I find there's too much narrative in fiction and not enough story, not enough drama. But what if we try to reconfigure the notion of narrative and how that actually works? So my tool is to do things totally visually, okay? Um, okay. No words at all. And anyone can do this very quickly. You can do it right now while we're even talking. Google on a, a picture of a nuclear mushroom cloud, one of the hydrogen bomb tests in the Pacific. There's many readily available. If you have that up against any other type of image, any other type of image, I suggest you've created a narrative structure. And it often mm. takes oh, a wow. very <laughs> specific form. And it is the deepest form within all of Western civilization. And it is the frame we all try desperately to break out of. It's even worse than the subject-object frame or the either-or binary. It is cause and effect. Ah. You know? If you put right. up the nuclear test up against a picture of Gus, say, mm -hmm. left mm -hmm. and right, you've got an implied cause and effect narrative, a warning perhaps. <laughs> you know? You've got some sort of comment. If you reverse those two, so Gus is for, you've got a very clear narrative you know but you can mm -hmm. plug in anything to that plug in anything and the the power of the hydrogen bomb explosion image as it's processed both visually and conceptually distorts and utterly commandeers the field of possible meaning semantically conceptually yeah. visually so breaking that that down how would we go about doing that? Well, then it's very difficult with, with something that is such a catastrophic image. But use that technique of, of and this ties in with your imaginative challenge, of a triadic insertion of adding a third frame, a third image, and building up, a rejigging re the narrative at the purely visual level. Because nothing is purely visual because we are embodied visual creatures. You know, that, that's, there's a conceptual level to anything. It doesn't need words, you know. It's well beyond right. words. It came before words. That's why we have words. Uh, mm -hmm. So rejigging that. But, but you can do that with some simpler things. And two image, you know, a split screen or a three image sequence. And isn't sequence the whole thing right there? I mean, really, why? How did that become, you know? Try to dimensionalize and, and, and re-to-hack those frames. And that, to me, is also what good fiction does. It really it changes my sense of time, my sense of, of tempo of life, tempo of consciousness, uh, tempo of focus, what I deem important to be. Uh, you know, I'm giving that my full attention. Well, geez, that's a, you know, really? I should give the whole yeah. world my full attention, you know? <laughs> right. Isn't Existence. it worth it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I like to think so. So that is, uh, 
And that ties in with one of the, the techniques that I'm getting a lot of good feedback that I do mention in the textbook, which is the very intentional uh, photographing of utterly mundane objects, which yeah. if you do that as a kind of uh, discipline, a religious practice almost, you will have a very different perspective on, on the world. And a new perspective is, is what we seek, and I would suggest a new perspective on the notion of perspective, uh, which is itself a very dubious inherited idea perspective is. Um, mm -hmm. So that's my tool, and that's something that everyone can do. But start off with the hydrogen bomb explosion and start juxtaposing some images. You can just, people are doodle, you know, diddling around at the computer. You know, it, you don't take, it does, this doesn't need a lot of you know, concentrated effort. But see how some different images fiddle with the field and fiddle with the field of your semantic processing of, of significance. Hmm. I like that. I like that again from a, I'm always thinking about how to re-jigger your, your tools in order to, uh, you know, become a better writer. And that one seems like pretty much right on the nose. Um, I'm definitely going to be using that. Excuse me, you're going to hear some, you're going to hear a crinkle here for a moment. I have to get some chicken out of a bag. All right, and I'm back. I'm back. But no, that's great. I'm, I'm definitely going to use that. I actually, I have a really good, uh, have you seen these black magic cameras? Yes. I have one. I have a black magic camera, as a matter of fact. I need to get a lens for it. I'm, I know next to nothing about photography. So <laughs> I bought uh, Rios for Mother's Day. I, you know, I went online and I found a used Blackmagic camera for $700. I thought, oh, wow, it's like half price. Like, this, this is amazing. So I get it. I, I take it out of the box and uh, I turn it on. I'm like, why is the screen just white? And I give it to her for Mother's Day and she's like, where's the, where's the lens for this? And I'm like, oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But, uh. Well, those yeah, are I, I cinema some, cameras some that have become suddenly, I mean, those used to be like five grand, you know. Mm -hmm. And even then were amazing to sort of get that, you know, into our hands. Well, look, you know, that's, it, it's kind of experimenting with those sorts of, those range of tools and not having such a, you know, an idea of direction about, well, where is this going, you know, which is, if mm -hmm. you get that kind of lost explorer's quality into the fiction, and, and that's right. really what I'm saying. I, I, I'm missing, uh, there's not enough lost explorer quality in, in, in contemporary fiction for me. And where there is, I support it. And I, I take note of all the, the mentions that you make. And I think there is more than I'm aware of. Uh, and we've got to keep the faith and, and keep looking for it. But it's that kind of mindset that I value the most. Mm-hmm. And for the tip? Okay, this is an odd one, but I, I had this surgery done on my back to remove these evil skin cancers from the days of living on the equator in the tropics and stuff. And of course, when you do have stitches in your body, you, you kind of become more aware of your movements. But this, is, again, is part of this, this idea of becoming more aware of things that we take entirely for granted about ourselves in an era when identity is is the, the number one theme and yet people don't even know where they were 
you know, sometimes 10 minutes ago. You know, they can't adopt right. the same position they were in. Uh, I've done just a few things of taking some uh, basic strips of scotch tape. And, uh, you know, like a Band-Aid or a scotch tape, you know, when you pull it off, it can be a little bit, you know, uncomfortable, but so what? Sure. But it's yeah. interesting to apply those to a few portions of our body, our articulated body. And isn't that a beautiful thing that we often take for granted? Someone can be articulate, but what's is there a relationship between that and an articulated skeleton? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. Articulate is an interesting idea that runs across those, and we often forget that. Uh, I'm very pleased to be an articulated skeleton. And uh, I, I want to be an articulate person, and I think there is a connection about that. So having some tape at a few junctions of the body makes you a little bit more conscious of movement. And you suddenly think, God, I didn't actually realize I, I was doing that, you know? Or I took that movement of uh, I've got my coffee, uh, you know, where I put my coffee in, in a certain uh, cupboard. And I thought, you know, I wasn't really that conscious of moving that. In, in, and now I am. And I thought, well, maybe I can, is that the cupboard I want to have my coffee in? You know, maybe I could, you know, right. uh, I don't have to ask anyone's permission to move it to another cupboard. You know, <laughs> just this little sense of, of some diagnostics about all of the things that we're taking so for granted and when you have to look after a kid buses edge, you're looking at rooms very differently, I think. You know, all of these things are good. We, we, we have layers and layers and layers of hypnotized inattention. And we need to break out of that. And sometimes uh, the tools are hypnotic in themselves. For me, it's a lot of music and meditative practice now. It can be certainly exercise. But these little things of breaking up the order, breaking up the order, or calling more attention to order in terms of physical movement. I mean, I had no idea that I was really just moving my, you know, my arm the way I have been. But now with this tape on, I sure do. And I think, ah, oh, you know, I'm not going to leave it on all the time. But it's just, you know, it's just a little way of... And I think, well, look here, this is my body. I should know something about it. I should know a little bit about my movements, you know? So. What kind of tape did you say? I just use some, I use some, I, I really basic scotch tape that is from, you know, uh, Staples, okay. the office supply company. And it, and it makes a noise. It's really annoying. And it, it's, you, you can't really put up with it for too long but it really uh, it just makes you aware of some movements that you think oh okay uh, and I, I found that sitting you think well sitting is sitting right you know no it's not it can make a big difference whether you're sitting in your office chair or you're sitting on the toilet or if you're sitting not really sitting, you're perched on something. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. And that, I mean, if you had to relearn all of this, you know, from a real basic movement sense, uh, or think of it from a robotic sense, like someone programming machines to do this, they really look at things, really break it down really simply. 
got a friend who's in, you know, this build and he's a build and release engineer. Isn't that great? Yeah. I'd rather be that than, you know, you know, sometimes than a writer, you know. You know, I mean, you don't you don't hear thinking about that, yeah. You hear people on Twitter going, "Hey writers, what are you working?" You know, you, you don't sort of see any, "Hey build and release engineers, you know, do you have a solution?" It's just sort of so much cooler and more magical and I don't know, scientific and technical. I think so too. I think that you you bring up a really good point about, you know, what's the reason Hang on. I was thinking to myself, you know, I told you on the phone, I said, you know, I'm going to, I always want to be a writer and that's what I'm going to do. <clears throat> and then I got to thinking, well, but why? You know, sort of along the lines of what you were just saying, like, why be a writer? Why not, you know, be a, a high wire artist or, you know, why not be a skydiver or what have you? And I thought, well, because at a certain point, I really thought that writing was fun. And I had to get back to that. And I think that a lot of people, a lot of people miss that. It's like, why, why call yourself a writer? Well, it depends. I mean, if being a writer is all about like, you know, following the steps to get published so that you can sign autographs in a border somewhere, you know how boring it would be to sign autographs for an hour and a half? That's gotta be the most boring thing that Stephen King has to do. You know that when Stephen King has to go do that, he's like, oh God. Here we go. Got to go sign autographs again. But the writing itself has to be fun. This is a tangent. I'm going to I'm going to drop it, but it's just what yeah. You said it reminded me of yeah. That. Well, look, I I hear you, you know, I I wanted to be a writer cuz my heroes were writers. But then I think about, well, I mean, Arthur Rambeau ended up running guns in Africa, you know? Right. It, right. Going to Barnes and Noble to sign book was not his big dream, you know? <laughs> Oh, that's a great that that's that's one of the catch cries of our time. <laughs> You're crying for no reason. Yeah. That's a popular song title. It's a headline. It's an artifact of of all of modernity. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I try to communicate to him that he needs to cry for reasons. Because otherwise it all becomes white noise. It's the boy who cried wolf. Yeah. I I need I need to I need to actually know when there's danger around not just you know you're having a bad day so you're complaining at me that and nobody likes nobody likes being yelled at but see isn't that an example a simple example you know Charles Fort who we really admire said you can measure a circle starting anywhere on its surface you know that's an inroad into the entire problems of our era right there you know, right. you should be crying for a reason. You know that that is one of the great problems of our. It, it, it's it, it's the whole story of mental illness in our time because of the leading cause being depression. That's the number one psychological problem, and the disassociation, the disconnection from internal response to actual physical experience. It's the argument against behaviorism in the sciences, and that we're all simply you know you know machines responding to stimuli you know there's everything in that simple moment of calm and great writing great literature great art can take the most mundane there is nothing mundane there's nothing mundane or obvious ever 
everything is potentially miraculous and magical if we have the right mindset. And that's what art should be, you know, getting us to rethink, you know? Suddenly like, oh, what does, is that really right? Should we only cry for reason? Is that, is that correct? I mean, uh, I'll, I'll give you another a, a variation, a riff on this in real time. That made me, you know, I was thinking of the question, well, who's failed me in my life and who have I failed? And I thought, well, okay, failure is, is a hard thing to accept or even consider. Does that make it good? Are all good things always hard? You know? Just even asking that question is a little bit empowering, you know? Yeah, I don't think, I think, I think more of them than people would be comfortable admitting are. I, I have a, an overarching uh, sort of ontological idea that, you know, you have the collective unconscious or the well of souls or whatever you call it, and that uh, we incarnate in these bodies to experience difficulty so that we can experience either overcoming or succumbing to the difficulty, both of which are impossible when you're a disembodied soul form in, you know, the great you know, halo that circles the earth, or heaven if you want to call it that. But the difficulty is a very specific uh, feeling that we sign up for, along with things like uh, play and happiness and sadness and being bored and all this other kind of stuff. But I think if you, if you mute any of those very human experiences, including facing difficult obstacles, then you're definitely doing yourself a disservice. But I would, I would, I would say that if people reframed difficulty as a positive thing, well, you'd see a lot less crying for no reason. That's for well, sure. Well, the other thing is, why should you avoid? Dif- I mean, there's that. You know, I mean, right, it, right. It, it, it's breaking the frame of of what are predictable responses to everything. You know, yeah, and right. and also engaging is if we're going to be relativists and say, well, there's no real reality, and, well, then we should really engage with relativity and go with it. Well, then there's no such thing as anything difficult. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not. That's not an absolute. You know, get off. The couch. How about this one? How about this? How about this one? There's no such thing as a disability. Yeah, there you go. See that? Yeah. I mean, that that that's exactly right. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, why not? No, there's. It's like, well, I'm in a wheelchair. It's like, well, I mean, but I still I fail to see how this is a disability, in that it puts you at a disadvantage. And they say, well, I can't climb stairs, dude. It's like, well, I don't know. I'm just I'm not seeing I'm not seeing the, the scientific truth or proof of this disability that you speak of. Well, you know, so and and the and the real you know, fact on the ground around the, the streets is the people in wheelchairs are the last people to, you know, to really call for special, you know, attention. They're the right. people who are the except most for, functional, you know? Except for the trans disabled. Have you seen these people? Oh. People who believe that they're disabled. There was a fight video I saw where, oh, uh, let's go with a woman. A woman in a wheelchair got into a fight with somebody. And she stood up and started fighting the guy. This big, six foot tall, six foot two Amazonian queen. Uh, and the comments were like, "But wait, she's not in a wheelchair. Isn't that like faking?" And then people said, "Faking? How dare you? 
She is trans disabled. She identifies as someone whose legs don't work. Oh, well, see, there we go. There we go. I mean, oh, dear. You know? I thought you'd like that one. Dear me. Well, I think we can... We'll have plenty of time to dig forks in that dead beast. Uh, I mean, that is just... Oh, God, Lord. Something else. Yeah. Something yeah, else. It it's is. 2022, baby. Yes, it 2022. is. Yes, it is. There's no doubt about that. I think that is, there's no doubt about that at all. You know? Well, that ties into the first uh, part of my, my dream. I've been having a huge, hugely rich dreaming period. Just this gigantic substrate of La Brea tar pit sort of stuff that I just can't even get to. There's layers and layers and layers. So these are two things that kind of emerge out of just monumental operatic theatrical circus dreaming over the last three or four nights. But it was a new phenomenon breaks into virality in 2022. The cause is not entirely clear, but people, people, people who uh, have penises, people who menstruate, you know, all sorts of people start lactating. Okay? And it's a kind of weird secretion, like slightly crystallized honey, but it's nonetheless, so you have to kind of squeeze it to get out. But it has this really peculiar uh, combined narcotic but nourishing quality to it. And it's somewhat sort of addictive. Not everybody has the capability. And there's also the physical nature of, of pectoral muscles and breasts. So some people have an easier time getting access to this secretion so that they can eat it, you know? But it's a kind of self-sustaining thing. What's mysterious is what is creating this phenomenon. What foods and possible supplements are responsible? And is it geographically distributed? And it becomes this enormous industry of who is, you know, who and what? Who is capable of secreting this substance? What's behind this phenomenon? And there are whole industries that explode into internet existence, uh, saying, well, this is what's behind it. And, you know, take more of this, eat more of this. Or if you're not lactating the secretion, if you're not secreting, uh, you can, you, you know, change your diet, change your habits. And then there are, uh, you know, the question of people going into business. Like, it's easier for women, particularly large-breasted women, to be able to, you know, access their own nipples that way. But they, there's a whole selling industry. And then there's a question of how long the secretions stay fresh, you know? And it becomes this entire sort of thing. And I thought, wow, there you go with mm -hmm. some kind of crazy 
somewhat disgusting, but also kind of beautifully apt metaphor for uh, the social media side of the world today. You know, this self-secreting thing. And I like that it, it isn't given, it's just called the secretion. <laughs> it's a very David Cronenberg dream. Yeah, it is. It is. It's really sort of squishy. Squishy and, and yeah. kind of personal, you know? Right. That's that's cool. <laughs> yeah, you can hear the, the, I don't know, I'm just so grossed out by secretions in general. Pus and... Uh, you know, obviously, breastfeeding is very, it's a very beautiful, natural act. But it's also, you know, if, when you see the breast pump going, there's something very... I don't like things being removed from people's bodies. It sounds like a weird thing to say. I've never been a big blood donor or anything like that. There's something very visceral to me about well, secretions. I guess. Well, this is the big, you know, this is the essence of the human story. We have a hard time dealing with our own squishiness, our own, mm. you know, physicality. And this is, I mean, this is why we're all, I mean, there are, are two great industries, amusement or entertainment and, and weaponry or war. And the third big trend, I think, in human development is the the. the the war on biology, the resistance to embodiment and all that it entails, you know? Mm. We want to hang on to existence, but it would be nice if, if there weren't those smells and those fluids and substances and textures, you know? It's just a little bit too, you know, a little bit too real, you know? You know? 